Friends, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 32. In the last week in our series on Jacob, and this week the Lord shows up and wrestles with him. Genesis 32, starting in verse 22. The same night Jacob arose and took his two wives and his two female servants and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket on Jacob's hip, on the sinew of the thigh. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ready our hearts to hear from him by standing together and singing our song of preparation, Satisfied. Let's sing to God's glory. Jesus satisfied. 
something that would satisfy. But the dust I gathered round me only mocked my soul's sad cry. Hallelujah, He has found me, the one my soul so long has prayed. Father, you have found us by your grace, and you have been the one who alone can satisfy the cravings of our, our very souls. So, Lord, I ask that you would meet with us in, the, in this moment by the power of your Spirit, that you would satisfy all our longings through your Son, Jesus Christ, that we would leave here knowing that we have met, maybe even wrestled with you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Please, friends, be seated. So since we last met, Jacob has been a very busy boy. He has fled from his home in order to flee from his brother Esau, you remember, who who wants to take his very life. And leaving home, he went to stay with his uncle Laban. Now, having arrived to stay with him, he ended up staying there for 20 years. Years, You know those house guests that show up for the weekend? You know, it's like a whole new level uh, to, to overstaying your welcome. But uh, during this 20-year period, two very important things happened. First of all, chapter 29 tells us that during this 20-year period, Jacob amassed a huge family. It began one morning when he met a beautiful woman, and he moved in and kissed her on their, their very first meeting. And you think, huh, the mama's boy's got some game. I did not see that coming, right? Good work. Well, 
the story from there is so wild that you really have to read it yourself later, but the short version is uh, he gets tricked into marrying the ugly sister. Um, not to be you know, stopped that easily, he ends up marrying both sisters and then has about a dozen kids with his sister wives and also with two of his servants. It's reality TV at its very worst. So then we move into chapter 30, where we realize that having amassed a huge family, Jacob also amasses a huge fortune. Jacob, the schemer, the deceiver, goes to work, and professionally, things go very well. If you look at verse 43 of chapter 30, we get a summary of his wealth. Do you see it there? We're told the man, that's Jacob, increased greatly. Literally, the Hebrew says he increased very, very. It's the absolute superlative of wealth. We read that he had large flocks, which in his day meant he had a big bank account. He had female servants and male servants. He had a chef and a butler and a masseuse and a whole entourage of of helpers. And then we read that he had camels and donkeys. Camels, which were a rare and very expensive animal, and donkeys, which were a load-bearing and very productive animal. So he is a man who has both a Porsche and a sweet truck. He is a man who has fabulous wealth by the end of chapter 30. So here he is with his huge family, with his huge fortune, and then comes chapter 31 which introduces us to yet another twist in Jacob's life. He's been gone for some 20 years, and then the Lord appears and tells him that it's time to go home. Time to go back to the family farm. Time to go back to the ranch. Time to go back to Esau. Esau, the brother who wants him dead. Now, it's important for us to understand at this point in the text that that Jacob is as a deeply conflicted man. He's, he's a deeply conflicted man. On, on one hand, he actually obeys the Lord. He packs up everything and everyone he owns and he heads for home. He's, he's trying to walk in obedience to God. And we say, finally, Jacob, it took till the very last sermon in the series for you to do something right. But we're, we're cheering him on. He's, he's trying to walk with the Lord. Yet, on the other hand, he's deeply nervous, and understandably so, because he's heading towards this brother who wants him dead. He's obeying the Lord, but he's doing so nervously. And so at the start of chapter 32, what Esau does is send some messengers, what Jacob does, sorry, is send some messengers to, to Esau to find out what kind of reception he should expect when he arrives home. So he says, you know, bro, are you still mad? You know, we let bygones be bygones. And let me just throw in the fact that since you last saw me, I've become fabulously wealthy. So my arriving home might not be all the bad news that you might receive it to be. But then in verse 6 of chapter 32, this is great. He doesn't exactly get the response he was hoping for. You see it there? The messengers come back and report, Esau is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. This is not the welcoming party he was hoping for. Esau has in fact heard that he is on his way and has marshaled some troops to come out and meet him. He's not even waiting for him to arrive. He's on the front foot of aggression. 
And so in verse 7, Jacob's nervousness gives way to just terror. You see it there. He is greatly afraid and distressed. Now what happens next is really fascinating because what happens in the next few verses is that the conflict that's within Jacob comes to the outside. The fear that's within him drives him to do two things. First of all, we see that Jacob, in his fear, prays. He prays to the Lord in verses 9 through 12. Always a good thing to do, especially when you're afraid. And again, we find ourselves cheering him on. Yes, Jacob, you're trying to obey and now you're praying. Like This is the, this is the right path. This is the right trajectory. And then the prayer itself is, is an awesome prayer. Look at verse 9 of, of 32. He says, Oh God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. He's remembering who it is that the Lord is. He continues, You are the Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. So he's remembering who God is and he's remembering what God has said. Continues in verse 10. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. He's acknowledging in light of who God is and in light of what God said that he is he's not worthy of the Lord's favor. Recognizing the Lord is driving him to confession. Carries on in, in verse 11 where he says, Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. Seeing the Lord, hearing his word, recognizing his own sin, now just bringing his request to him. Coming in his fear, coming in his weakness, and and asking the Lord for help. What a model prayer for us. Then he closes in verse 10, in verse 12. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. He's saying, I'm afraid I'm going to die, but you've said I'm not going to die. So help me here. Help me. It's a great moment for Jacob. It's a great thing that in his fear he would come and pray and if only he'd stop there. Unfortunately in the rest of the chapter we see that fear drove Jacob not just to pray but also secondly to plot. Verses 13 through 21 the schemer, the deceiver again goes to work and he comes up with with two plans. defensive measures and and offensive measures. On the defensive side, he takes his family and his fortune and he divides them into two camps. So one wife and some cash over here, another wife, some cash over here. Just in case they're attacked, one of these camps will, will hopefully survive. Later we read that he sends the less beautiful sister to meet Esau first. You think, Jacob, you have not come as far as we hoped, right? So that's his defensive plan, but then he also has, a, has an offensive plan, which is quite simply to prepare the most lavish and excessive bribe possible. Look at verse 14 and 15. Here he prepares a present for Esau. He gets 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20, yam, 20 rams, 30 milking camels. Now, if a camel is sweet, a milking camel is awesome, right? Uh, and their calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. It's an absolutely absurd amount of wealth that he is trying to pass on to his brother Esau. 
Then in verses 16 through 19, we read that he delivers this wealth in, in three waves. So Esau's sitting there at home, and then suddenly a pile of cash arrives. 30 minutes later, a flat screen TV. An hour after that, a new truck. And Esau's thinking, wow, you know, this, this, this is pretty great. Why is Jacob doing all this? Verse 20 tells us. You see it there? That I may appease him. That I may appease him. Jacob is being Jacob. He is plotting as to how he can manipulate his brother. So you see what's, what's happening in our text so far. Jacob is conflicted, faith and fear. And so he's praying and he's plotting. In his conflict, he's relying on God, but he's also relying on himself just in case God doesn't come through. And I hate to admit it. I hate to admit how much that resonates with my own experience. Relying on God, but also relying on myself. Something I've always struggled with. Perhaps you're the same. Trust the Lord, but put a lot of trust in your own day-to-day efforts. For me, it's not that I rely on some lavish wealth that I can bribe people with. For for me, what what I rely upon is good old-fashioned hard work. Protestant work ethic from a Presbyterian pastor. This is like ingrained in me to rely on hard work. And that's where, see, hard work's a good thing, but that's where a lot of my functional trust goes. And that's when it becomes a bad thing. So I trust the Lord, and I trust him with my marriage, and I trust him with my kids, and I trust him with this church. And yet I also find it very hard to rest as a husband, as a father, even as your pastor, because I want to have what it takes and I want to ward off failure and I want to do a good job and so I keep on top of things and I keep everything in order and I have a semblance of control because I feel better when I'm working. I feel better when I'm working. It's, it's, my, it's my coping mechanism. You see, I'm, I'm conflicted. I'm conflicted between relying on the Lord, yes, of course, and relying on myself and my ability to work hard. Perhaps that resonates with you. Perhaps it's, it's something else. Perhaps you have a different parallel track that you rely on just in case God doesn't come through. A uh, few friends shared some of theirs this week. Some said, yeah, for me, it's not generosity or, or hard work, but it is the bank balance. I'll tell you my security comes from God, but I feel a lot more secure when my balance is high. Another said it was their appearance. I feel better about the angst on the inside when I can look good on the outside. Another shared about how, for them, it was, it was, it was another person. Everything feels okay in my world when I know I can get security from and depend on this husband of mine. And so when this husband of mine lets me down, I have a very disproportionate emotional reaction because it feels like my very security is craving. Another one shared, and I thought this was great, uh, very insightful, that for them, the thing they rely on is distraction. 
So their coping mechanism for their fear, their coping mechanism for what their life is really like, is to numb their fears with another event on the calendar, another glass of wine, another trip to the store, another mind-numbing game of Candy Crush. So I don't have to think about reality. I don't have to think about real life. We have these parallel tracks that we rely on along with God to make sure that for us everything's okay. What, what is that parallel track for you? What is it that you rely on as well as the Lord? See, the problem with this, the problem with these conflicted hearts is that they necessarily result in spiritual dryness. And that this has very often been my experience. You know, I start off saying, I'm going to trust in the Lord... I'm going to work hard kind of as a safety net, you know, in case the Lord doesn't come through. But what always happens subtly, slowly, without me noticing, is that things flip. So now functionally I trust in my hard work and the Lord's the safety net in case I don't come through. Except I'm not always sure that safety net is going to hold me. And so you functionally start to live a life that's devoid of his presence in your life, that's devoid of sweetness, that's devoid of time and his word, that's devoid of prayer. Why? Because all that stuff useless if you're relying on yourself. You've got to get up, you've got to get going, you've got to attack the day. And spiritual dryness ensues. Jacob is, is deeply conflicted. He's a messy mix of fear and faith, of self-reliance and God-reliance, of praying and of plotting. And I often feel the same way. <laughs> And perhaps, perhaps you do too. Now, the rest of our passage, we're about to get, sorry, we're about to get to our passage. Okay, we've been leaning into it, right? The rest of our passage, the passage that we actually read this morning, I find really captivating because it shows us how God sometimes deals with our conflicted hearts. We find ourselves this messy mix, fear of faith. How does the Lord deal with that? Well, this passage shows us how God sometimes deals with us. Now, What God does is hugely encouraging. God is going to bless Jacob. He is going to show up and Jacob is going to find everything he longs for in this God and in this gospel. What he does is deeply encouraging. But it's it's how God does it that really struck me this week. It's how God does it that really blows my mind. Do you see it in our text? To bless Jacob, God had to do two things. First of all, to bless Jacob, God had to make him weak. To bless Jacob, God had to make him weak. It's a bizarre text, isn't it? Jacob's all conflicted fear and faith, and how do we expect God to react? See, just reading through these narratives, I kind of expect God to show up and maybe repeat that covenant promise. Or maybe God will show up and do some sort of divine act that will reassure Jacob. Or just show up in some vague generic way and give him a divine hug and Jacob will feel better about his life. But no, that's not what God does. God sees him in his fear and shows up and wrestles him to the ground. It's super bizarre. It's super bizarre. Now, we've maybe been in Sunday school too long that we're too familiar with this story. But when you see it with fresh eyes, this is a pretty... Random story. Verse 21, Jacob is alone 
taking time in this kind of personal retreat, uh, getting ready for his day of reckoning. The very next day is when he will go to Esau. And suddenly he feels a hand on his shoulder and finds that Jacob, who, who wrestled his brother in the very womb, is now wrestling with God. It's wrestling... I mean, I don't know what moves God used, but all of a sudden, Jacob finds himself in some kind of like divine headlock. Verse 24 tells us that they wrestled from dusk until daybreak. They wrestled all night. Now, have you ever been in a fight? Leave a kind of awkward show of hands moment. Um, <laughs> have you ever been in a fight? Even just a friendly fight. Fighting is tiring, so I'm told. Um, and to wrestle all night... That, that's exhausting. And at this point, Jacob, this is hilarious, Jacob's about 100 years old at this time. One pastor says the only reason he was up at night was because he was going to the bathroom. Right? <laughs> and here's Jacob wrestling from, <laughs> from you know, till, till, till daybreak. It's, it's a bizarre scene. But then comes verse 25 and things start to come together. Do you see it there? Here's where God makes Jacob weak. Verse 25, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. The divine finger just taps Jacob's hip and is permanently devastated. He'll limp for the rest of his life because of this one touch, this one moment. And as soon as it happens, it, it seems as if the scales fall from Jacob's eyes and Jacob suddenly realizes who he's with. That he's not with any mere man, but he's with God himself. Only God would have the power to inflict that kind of damage with so little effort. And so in verse 26, Jacob stops fighting and he just holds on. Just grabs around God's ankle and holds on. It's as if the penny has dropped. That I can't plot, scheme, deceive my way into blessing. And believe me, I have tried. I have stolen birthrights. I have stolen blessings. I have married beautiful women. And it hasn't worked. It hasn't worked. I can't rely on myself to gain blessing. The only way I can be blessed is if this God blesses me. And so you get this cry, this cry of desperation. I will not let you go until you bless me. He's saying, you're my only hope. I have nothing else to hold on to. If I am going to be blessed, there's only one way I can be blessed, not through my efforts, but through your kindness toward me. And what does God do in response to this desperate plea? Two things. First of all, verse 28, you see it? God changes his name. He changes his name. No longer will he be Jacob, the deceiver, the cheat, but he'll be called Israel, which means God strives. The emphasis of his name will no longer be his sin, but God's works. His very identity will no longer be about what he does, but about what God has done for him. And after changing his name, verse 29, you see it. He blesses him. He blesses him. Jacob has strived his entire life to receive the blessing. And now he gets everything he longed for in this encounter with God. He finally hears those words he wanted to hear. And they were finally actually meant for 
Um, but here's the point. To bless Jacob, God had to make him weak. What brought Jacob to this moment of desperation? This moment of pain? What made Jacob flee from his self-reliance, this experience of suffering? What made Jacob cling to God, his weakness? God knew that weakness would bring Jacob to an end of himself so that he'd cry out to God and could then be truly blessed. Then be truly blessed. Does God ever deal with us like that? Bless us by making us weak, strip us, of our self-reliance so that we'll cling to him? The answer is yes. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he does. If you have conceived of the love of God as candy and roses and, you know, hugs and valentines, you have misunderstood, you have just totally, yeah, underestimated the ferocious tenacity with which God is prepared to love you. The ferocious tenacity with which God is prepared to love you. Yes, at times he does make us weak in order that he might bless us. And he is prepared to do so. I know I've experienced it in my story. For me, it was a season of anxiety and depression in 2011. A season in my life where the train of my life came screeching to a halt. And all my coping mechanisms stopped with it. Everything that I'd relied upon in myself, that ability to have what it takes, ward off failure, do a good job, stay on top of things, keep everything in order, have a semblance of control, all fell apart because my ability to work hard was wrestled to the ground by God. The very thing I'd been relying on was taken away from me, made me weak, destroying my self-reliance, and made me cling to God. Now, I've got to tell you, God showed up in that season in ways that I'd never before experienced. I also have to tell you that that season was, 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 was dark. And if you've struggled with anxiety or depression, you, you know. And if you don't, you can imagine. If you haven't, you can imagine. It was dark, and yet it deepened my relationship with the Lord in ways that it's, it's just hard to describe. It's hard to describe. And I wonder if a similar thing has happened to you. I wonder if you've ever had something happen in your own life that made you cast yourself upon God's mercy. I wonder if you've ever found God stripping you of your self-reliance that you would cry out and be blessed. Again, some friends share with me that for them it wasn't the touching of the hip and it wasn't anxiety or depression, but for them, one said it was their parents' divorce. Their parents divorced and the world as they knew it came crashing down in a way that made them call out to God and and ultimately find blessing. Another shared it was when their own marriage fell apart. Having never failed anything their entire lives, they now found themselves failing in the most intimate and yet public of ways, in a way way that made them cry out to God and and in the end be blessed. Another shared it was when their sexual addiction was discovered. Another when they lost a job. Another when a child became estranged. Several who shared it was when a cancer, cancer diagnosis came. 
that self-reliance was stripped from them in such a way that they called out to God and found that they were blessed. Through these experiences of weakness, they clung to God and blessing came. Now, I want to be careful here. I want to be careful about two things. First of all, I want to be careful. We're not saying, and I'm not saying, that all suffering is designed to rebuke your self-reliance. That's just not the case, and there are too many counterexamples. I'm not saying that if there's suffering in your life, it's definitely there as a rebuke to your self-reliance. No, we're saying God sometimes uses these means to draw us to himself. And you know, there are people who are wise and humble enough to hear the Lord's voice in summer. I'm just not one of them. (laughs) My head is harder than that. And it typically requires a ferocious, tenacious love to draw me home. And many of us are that way. God has to wrestle us from death to life. But it's not necessarily the case. All suffering isn't that way. Second thing we're not saying is, I also want to be careful not to imply, I'm not saying we should be happy about our weakness. I'm really, really happy to struggle with anxiety and depression. And it would be super glib to say, yeah, you should be happy about your parents' divorce. You should be happy about your own failed marriage. You should be happy about your own sexual addiction. You should be happy about the cancer diagnosis that came. You, you know, to sort of say, oh, yeah, you know, praise the Lord anyway. Um, real life's just much more messy than that. Real life is much more messy than that. And weakness and suffering can, can mark our lives forever. It's fascinating to me that that Jacob, isn't it great? That Jacob led the rest of his life with a limp. Everywhere Jacob went from this point on, it took him 10 extra minutes. And then it's almost humorous to me. Verse 32 is almost humorous. Uh, Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew on the thigh that is on the socket of the hip. Like Jacob, dude can't even have lunch without being reminded of what's happened to him in his story. His weakness was, in a sense, ever before him. It's unfinished, it's messy, and that's kind of real life. So I'm not saying all suffering is designed to rebuke self-reliance. I'm not saying we're happy about our weakness, but I am saying that God sometimes uses weakness to draw us to himself, that he loves us enough to strip us of our unhealthy coping mechanisms so that we'll be fully blessed in him. And while I'm not saying I'm happy, I am saying I'm grateful. Personally, no. I'm saying I'm grateful. You know, Jacob appears in Hebrews 11, that great famous hall of faith chapter, where those who have gone before us and and, and walked uh, with faith in the Lord are celebrated. And we think, like, what's Jacob doing in there? You know, the guy who had his own TLC show, how did he make it into the Hall of Faith? And then we remember, well, no, everyone in that chapter is an absolute disaster. And the reason we celebrate that chapter is because of the faithfulness of God, not because of the faithfulness of man. But Jacob does appear in that chapter. And in verse 21, Hebrews eleven twenty-one. this is such a great verse. It says, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he lent on his staff. Worshipped as he leant on his staff. I love that. Why did, he, why did he lean on his staff? Because God jacked his hip up. 
it was like that way for the rest of his life. And he wouldn't have worshipped any other way. That's what it took for him to become a worshipper. And my weakness is what it took for me to become a worshipper. And perhaps in your experience, you can look back at seasons and know, yeah, I'm not glib about it, I'm not naive about it, I'm not silly or happy about it, but I'm grateful for the tenacious love of God that invaded my life and wrestled me home. And, and if you're in a place of, of, of weakness this morning, suffering this morning, and if the Spirit is putting it on your heart that that's what he's doing with you just now, then, then hear his kind voice of grace that's calling you home to give you blessing. The tenacious love of God that hurts for the moment and then heals for eternity. Okay, before closing, we have to know one more thing. Remember, I said God had to do two things in order to bless Jacob. First of all, to bless Jacob, God had to make him weak. Secondly, our text also shows us that to bless Jacob, God had to make himself weak. Look with me at verse 25. It's strange to us, but would have been astounding and even offensive to the original readers. We read that God and Jacob wrestled, but God did not prevail against Jacob. Look at verse 28. Uh, Again, reinforces this idea where the Lord says that Jacob has striven with God and has prevailed. And we say, this is... How, how, is this, how has this happened? This doesn't make any sense. Surely if God shows up to wrestle you, he just like destroys you in a nanosecond. Like surely he wins. You know, when God wrestles, surely he's the victor. And we say, well, of course, but it, it's kind of like when I wrestle with my kids. Sometimes I just walk in the door and it's like WrestleMania, okay? And there's loads of them, so they attack from angles I wasn't ready for, right? And uh, then, you know, we'll kind of like stumble our way into the living room and I'll be in a suit on the floor and they'll be boisterous and loud and people everywhere and it's absolutely delightful. And you say, well, what's wrong? Like, can't you destroy your children? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> like, my seven-year-old, she's a feisty wee thing, but I'm pretty sure I can take her, right? <laughs> That's the point. I I don't wrestle to harm them. I wrestle because I love them. And so the Lord shows that he's not wrestling to kill Jacob. He's wrestling to bless Jacob. Of course, he could have crushed him in a nanosecond, but then he wouldn't have got what he wanted, namely to bless Jacob. And so he makes himself weak so that he doesn't overpower him using only the strength that is needed until he would cry out for blessing. Friends, God appearing in human form, making himself weak to bless us. How can we miss the connection to the cross? How can we miss the connection to the cross where the true Jacob wrestles with God? And the outcome of that wrestling wouldn't just be a limp, it would be crucifixion. It would be, it would be death. And yet he says, I will not let go until you bless them. I will not let go until you bless them. The love that will not let us go so that God gave him the name that is above every name. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And if you know him, 
Call this place, verse 30, call this place Peniel, for you have seen the face of God. And if you don't know him, then know that this is the only God who will be weak for you. He's the only God who goes to the cross to lose so that you might win. The only God who will fail so that you might be victorious. The only God who will bring you to the end of yourself so that you'll cry out to him for blessing. And when you do cry out for blessing, he will bless you and he will change your name and he will forgive your sins and he will make you whole and you will never be the same again. You will never regret the moment you trusted this Jesus. Friends, we've reached the end of Jacob, or at least our time in Jacob. It's been clear, hasn't it, that God has not held Jacob up as a moral example to show us how to live a good life. He has held Jacob up as an absolute disaster to show us the love of God in Christ that we might live a new life. And so by faith, by faith we step out with a wonky gait, hobbled yet somehow whole, limping, but somehow loved and no longer grasping for grace because it's given in the gospel. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you once again for these moments in your word and for your tenacious love. You came to Jacob, this conflicted man, And made him weak in order that you might bless him. And Lord, you come to us and our conflicted hearts. And sometimes you make us weak in order that we might call out for blessing. But more than any of that, Lord, you have have made yourself weak. You have given us your son, God in human form, made weak that you might bless us. It's a gospel we couldn't make up, uh, but it's a gospel that we can only respond to by, by giving you praise. So we thank you in the perfect name of your son, Jesus. Amen.